Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Good morning, Southbridge Church family. Thank you so much for joining us for Church Online today. I'm glad you're with us. We're going to jump right into it today. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, start reading at verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. We started this series last week talking about the sufficiency of God's grace. And today we're going to keep going in that. And I bet most of you here have experienced a test before. Maybe it was when you were in school, you had a math test or a science test or an English test, a spelling test. Maybe you spelled words wrong. You thought that was a big deal back then. And now you're like, spell check, right click. Like, I'm good. I just get in the ballpark. Like, we're, we're all set. And there's, there's a certain kinds of tests that test what we know. And then as you get a little bit older in life, you find there's, there's tests that reveal more about who we are. And maybe that's you're scrolling through your social media and you see it as something that says, the first three words you see tell you something about you. Have you ever seen those tests? Or there's so, your favorite TV show, answer these quiz questions. It'll tell you which character you would be if you were on the show. Or if you can find this letter in this crossword puzzle looking thing, you're a genius. And so then you put it on there and you're, you're looking for the letter three hours later. You're still, I might be a genius, like you're going through... Or maybe you've taken a personality test, and it tells you you're a golden retriever, or a lion, or an otter, or whatever it is that it tells you. It tells you some initials, the DISC, the ESFJ, or the JQZY, and all that stuff. Maybe the Enneagram. If you speak Enneagram, it's numbers. Five, and ones, and threes, and eights, and you're like, well, I didn't know I had to know math in order to know how to receive love. Like, you're just reading this stuff, and it's telling you, it's telling you stuff about who you are. But I'm going to give you the ultimate personality test right now. I'm going to ask you a question. How you answer this question will tell you everything you need to know about yourself. It's September 27th today. Is it too soon to be listening to Christmas songs in the car? (laughs) I was riding in the car with my kids the other day, and one of my daughters was sitting in the passenger seat. She was in charge of the radio. She turned a Christmas song on, and my other daughter from the back seat yells, It's the first day of fall! You can't, like, you're ruining fall. We're skipping pumpkin spice. Stop doing that. And it caused an all-out battle in our car. By the third Christmas song, everybody was singing Christmas songs. Now, I had my thoughts. What are your thoughts? Is it too soon? And maybe if you're, you're watching here and you can put in the comments, if you think it's too soon, put hashtag too soon. Or if you think it's great to sing Christmas songs right now, hashtag Christmas 2020. Now, let me tell you my thoughts. My thoughts were, it's 2020. Who cares? All the rule, all the social norms, that's all out the window. Here we go. Like, if we're singing Christmas songs, maybe we're closer to the end. We're almost through this thing. What about you? See, there's certain kinds of tests that test what you know. There's certain kinds of tests that reveal something about who you are. And the problem is, for many Christians, is that we think the tests in life are going to be about all the things that we know. Like, there's even some forms that train people in evangelism, how to share their faith, that act like there's a quiz at the end, and as long as you have the right information, you're going to pass the quiz. (laughs) The reality is, what we see is, most tests that come in in our lives it tests who we are. And we see that throughout the Bible. You see Eve in the, in the gardens. Surely God didn't say, but it wasn't about our knowledge because it says the next thing that happens is she sees something was good. It was a test of her heart. Cain, Cain sins crouching at your door, desires to have you. He fails the test. Abraham with his son Isaac and Mount Moriah, it's a test of his faith. And the tests reveal what's inside of us. It reveals what's happening in our lives. And let's be real candid. There's been a lot happening in all of our lives lately. The last six months with covid I remember when COVID started thinking that in two weeks, we're going to be back to church together. Now here we are about six months later, still working on our re-entry plan to come back together. And there's going to be a survey at the end of the service. If you haven't taken that already, we'd love to hear from you. 
we're in a process, a phased process of coming back together. Things haven't gone the way that we planned. And when things don't go the way that we planned, that's a test. When you're upset about what somebody else puts on social media, that's a test. All the political things that are happening in our lives, it's not just about the outward things that are happening. There's a test that's happening. It reveals things about our character. It reveals things about our hearts. Living in this world where it's trendy to be spiritual, but it's narrow-minded to follow Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, your character is constantly under fire. You're being tested. The question is, what is God revealing? And that's what we're going to talk about in our passage of Scripture today. If you've got a copy of the Bible, hopefully you're already there, but 2 Corinthians chapter 1 I'll start reading in verse 12 in just a moment, but last week we started this series, and Paul had gone into this town of Corinth, spent 18 months of his life there. He had a dream that if these people would be transformed by Jesus like he had been, that it would lead to gospel saturation throughout the city, and it was happening. But the problem was he left, and he left messy people, and messy people can make a mess. But praise God, and I would amen this to myself. I wasn't preaching the message. Amen. The church is for messy people. We're not waiting for you to get cleaned up, to be a part of this, this body, that God's doing a work of transforming us, and he was transforming these people, and God was doing a work, and so Paul writes them back in light of that work. But one of the problems that was happening in the church now is there were some people that were making accusations against Paul and saying bad things about him. In fact, last week we looked at how they were saying that because of his suffering, that was evidence he wasn't a legit apostle. And he says, no, let me tell you about the significance of your and my suffering. That God's, in those moments, he's revealing his character. He's preparing us for ministry. He's working to deepen our dependence upon him. And so it's authenticating his apostleship. But there's other accusations that are coming at him now. And he writes and he shares about his life. What happens when, his, when he's facing criticism and his character's under fire, he shows us what God reveals in his life and what God's revealing in all of our lives. If you get your Bible, look at We'll just read the first few verses right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12. I'll read through verse 14. For our boast is this the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, what we say we mean and what we mean we say, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. And so what's happening here now is that Paul is facing these false teachers, these false, they call themselves super apostles, that have accusations against his integrity because he didn't fulfill some travel plans he had to come see Corinth. Saying, you're not consistent in your behavior about his integrity, about his words, that you lie, you're a liar, you're saying you're going to do something, you don't do it. And he's saying, here, no, what I say I do, and do I say, but I didn't fulfill the travel plans, let me tell you why. They even accuse him about his motives, we're going to see, that he's a, like he's a bully pastor, that he's domineering them. And he goes, no, let me, I'll lay open my... My, my motives. I'm going to lay open everything to you. I don't know if you've ever faced criticism before, but if you had, you've had somebody say something about you. Maybe there was some truth in it. Maybe it was totally slander. Maybe it was some truth, but it's twisted, or maybe it was totally true. Our tendency when we're criticized is to get defensive, maybe even to attack the other person. That's natural. That's a, that's a natural response. I remember one time I was having lunch with a friend here at our church. He's a leader and he was just talking to me about a lesson that he learned. He said, when we get defensive, it's like, and he put his hands up like a boxer. He says, it's like, it's like we're putting a barrier between us and that person. So but when we get vulnerable, we build bridges. And he held his arms out like he was welcoming the person in. 2 Corinthians is the most vulnerable book the Apostle Paul writes. And in this passage of Scripture, 
He's not, and vulnerability doesn't just mean telling us all the things that are wrong with you. It's just opening up to your life. Here's my life. Here's, here's who I am. Here's all of me. You can see it. You can have it. And that's what Paul does in this passage. He opens up and he says, you know, my integrity is under attack. Let me show you what's going on in my heart. You're coming after me about, about being duplicitous in my speech. Let me talk to you about my walk of faith. You want to know about my motives? Here's, here's, the, here's what's behind all of my ministry. Here's, here's my motives. And that's what we see in this passage of Scripture today. First thing that we see when our character is under fire, when we're being tested, is that God reveals to us what's happening in our hearts. What's happening in our hearts. In Proverbs, the Bible says it like this. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 3. The crucible is for silver, and the furnace is for gold, and the Lord tests hearts. And what happens in our passage of Scripture today is that the Apostle Paul comes, and he doesn't deny that his plans have changed. And he doesn't deny that he had said that he had, the way that he had planned for things to happen. But did you see how he started the passage? It's so interesting. He uses these words in verse 12 and in verse 14. For our boast is this, and then at the end, that Jesus, when Jesus, the day of the Lord Jesus, you will boast of us, and we will boast of you. Now, here's what you need to know. If you go back to 1 Corinthians, Paul hates boasting. You can read in chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, he continually is rebuking their boasting because you think about an arrogance, a pride that comes with boasting. That's, it's almost like he's using this as a, as to try and get their attention as a device, a literary device to go, hey, pay attention, because now I'm talking about boasting, and you know I don't like boasting. Because what you see in 1 Corinthians is that Paul agrees with what Jeremiah the prophet says. If you're going to boast, the wise man doesn't boast in his wisdom. The strong man shouldn't boast in his strength. The rich man doesn't boast in his riches. If you're going to boast, you boast in the Lord. And that's what he's doing in this passage. Because when he, he lays his life out, when he becomes vulnerable, he says, let me give you evidence of what the Lord's doing in my life so that you can have confidence in me. And I want to be able to have confidence in you. And so my desire is, it's not an arrogant, prideful, it's a confidence that we would have. And so I'm just going to be vulnerable. I'm going to share with you. I'm going to show you my heart. And we see he does it here with a couple words. See that in verse 12, the first word, his conscience. He talks about his conscience. And he says that he has a clear, the testimony of our conscience. He's saying he has a clear conscience with the way that he's behaved, with simplicity. That's a single-mindedness, a, a focus in how he's behaved. And if you look through the Bible, Paul talks a lot about the conscience. In fact, he, he talks about it in the New Testament a ton and the importance of the conscience with qualifications for deacons and as he stands before different leaders. And, and in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 5, he says this, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. But here's the problem for many of us. When we hear conscience... There's a saying in our culture that's not from the Bible that says, let your conscience be your guide. When the Bible talks about conscience, it's not talking about a guide. Like many of us think, a guide is our conscience tells us the right way to go. It tells us when we're going the wrong way. And that's not what the Bible means when it talks about conscience. And here's how you know that. Because it's possible to do some things that are really bad and have a clear conscience. Because your conscience has been programmed incorrectly. Our culture, our environment, the people around us, all those things influence what we think is okay and is not okay. It's, it changes our conscience. When Paul was persecuting the church, so he's arresting Christians, he's you know, okay with them being murdered, like all that stuff, he thought he was serving God. He had a clear conscience. Throughout history, there's been people that cheat on their taxes, cheat on their spouses, people that have committed murder and thought it was okay. Like they had a clear conscience. They justified it, rationalized it, different things told them that was okay didn't mean it was okay with God. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in verse 4, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. 
Well, wait, so if Paul talks about the conscience being so important, he talks about his conscience being clear, but a conscience isn't a guide, then what is it? Here's what a conscience is. A conscience is like a first warning system. Like in your car. If you're driving in your car and, you know, the gas gauge says you're low on fuel. Now, if you're like me, you're like, yeah, that's just a warning. That's just a heads up. I can still go 20 miles. I've done that before and run out of gas. I had to go to somebody's house. Okay, you, you shouldn't, no, it's not right nor safe, Martin Luther said. It's not right nor safe to violate your conscience. But it's not the end all be all. It's not a guide. And Paul's, Paul's saying here, hey, my conscience is clear, but that's not all he says. He says he also operates in godly sincerity. Did you see that in verse 12? He says, simplicity and godly sincerity. The word that's used there for sincerity is actually two words put together. One's to put something in the light, and the other one's to have it examined, to be judged by the light. I don't know if you've ever been to the grocery store before in the produce section. Maybe some of you are these people, and you, you know produce way better than I do. You see people test produce, they'll shake it, thump it, do all kinds of stuff. I don't even know what y'all are doing to it. I just look, I'm like, it doesn't look like I have wormholes. Like, we're taking it. Like, it's good. But I'll, sometimes I'll see people do stuff because of peer pressure. I'll be like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm shaking it because the lady next to me was shaking her watermelon or whatever the different thing was. And, and so that's the idea that he's talking about here, but in the marketplace. They would use the word for sincerity when they were talking about pottery. But what some dishonest potters would do in the marketplace is they would fill cracks that were in the pottery with wax. And the way that you'd examine it is you held it up into the sunlight, and when the sunlight came through, you saw cracks that were in the pottery. You could see that it wasn't what they were trying to present it to be. What Paul's saying here when he says godly sincerity is you can examine, you can investigate. Come look, I was with you for 18 months. You can see all the stuff that I've done since then. Like Whatever you want to know, I'm laying it out. I'm, be, I'm inviting you in to investigate my life. And I ask you, follower of Jesus, if someone did that, you got anything you're hiding? They look through your emails, internet browser history, or with you when you thought you were alone. Because because that's integrity. That's what's under investigation, as he says. Look at, you can look at all of it here. I've got a clear conscience. You can look at all the things that I've done. I'm not hiding anything from you. Corinthians, he's, trying to, he's being vulnerable. He's not defending himself. He's saying, here, I want you to be confident. Boast in me, because you can see all of my life. It's a vulnerable leader. We see this actually happen where people go and investigate a leader in the book of Daniel. And you can go read it yourself, but just a short version of the story is that the king, King Darius, he's about 60-some years old at this point. He's leading his kingdom. And the way that he decides to break things down for administrative purposes, he comes up with 120 overseers. Over those 120 overseers, there's three other overseers in order for accountability. And there's one guy, Daniel, who's now an older man, he's probably in his 80s, who's excelling in this job. And his coworkers don't like it. And the people that are reporting to him, as direct reports, they don't like it. And so they decide, we're going to find something wrong with this guy, and then we're going to bring it to the king. And so they start to investigate his life. They follow him around, like Think 2020 or Dateline or Secret Police, and they're watching everything. They're watching who he does business with, what's going on with his money, where he's going, who he's with, when he's doing it, how he's handling himself, how he acts when he thinks nobody's watching. And the only thing they can come to a conclusion of, this guy's committed to his God. What if, what if that happened to you? You see, we're constantly in a test. We live in a time where it's trendy to be spiritual, but to follow Jesus is so narrow-minded. So will you stand up for Jesus in that?
if it might cost you your job, if it might cost you a relationship. We're doing all this virtual school, and so you're homeschooling your kids, and you get frustrated, and it's, is that bringing stuff out and showing things that are in your heart? Or maybe you're the student, and you're like, I can just Google the answer. I, you can cheat. Is that revealing things that are going on in your heart? Or you get an argument with your spouse, and then a dating app pops up, but you're married. Is that a test? What's going on in your heart? See, there are all these tests all the time. I don't have to tell any of you that just a couple weeks ago was an anniversary for September 11th, 2001, when our country was under terrorist attacks. Our kids are learning about this at school. They weren't, they weren't alive when it happened, but my wife and I were. And those of you who were, I can probably just say, where were you when it happened? And, you know, it brings back all these memories. And I remember seeing that second plane flying to that tower. I was in Dallas, Texas, and watching it on TV, and I couldn't believe it. Now, here we are, almost 20 years later, and I was watching these things on TV, and we're talking to our kids about things they're learning in school, and it still seemed unbelievable that it was happening in the... Seeing you know, police officers and firemen go running into buildings. Other people are running. They're like heroes running in. They are heroes running in. Other people are running out and worse things happening. It's just all unbelievable. We watched this one special on Flight 93. You remember that one? Flight 93 was the flight that the plane was hijacked by two terrorists that had knives and one guy saying he had a bomb. And they were going back to Washington, D.C. and it never made it. They don't know if it was going to hit the Capitol building or if it was going to hit the White House. But if you're familiar with the story, you know what happened was the passengers took the plane over and crashed into the ground, preventing other lives from dying. And there, there was one guy that became famous. His name was Todd Beamer. was on that plane. In the back, he tried to call his wife, and he couldn't. Got an operator on the phone. Said, if I don't make it, tell my wife, my family, how much I love them. Recited the 23rd Psalm, prayed the Lord's Prayer. And then the famous line for him is, let's roll. And in this documentary we were watching, they had what they said never heard before, you know, the, I don't remember what it's called, but the radio monitor that was in the plane is playing back what was happening and the interactions between the terrorists and the passengers, and you're listening to it, and I'm thinking to myself, that's what I would do. But here's the reality. You don't know until you're in the test. I mean, we don't like to think that's what we would do, but until we're in the test, we don't know. But here's the reality, believer. Hopefully you never are in a test like that but we're always being tested. In this world of continual compromise where we judge by results, not by character, your character is always under fire. It's always being tested. What's being revealed? Because it, what happens when our character is under fire, when our character is being tested, is our hearts are being revealed. But not only are our hearts being revealed, so is our faith. Our faith being revealed, what we truly trust in, what's happening in our hearts is being brought out inside and what's really there, not just what we put a presentation of, but then our faith. And our faith is what we really trust in. And we might claim to follow and trust in Jesus, that God, that our faith is in Him alone, but sometimes it's in our power, and sometimes it's in our money, and sometimes it's in our reputation. And when our character is under fire, those things come to the surface. And what we see happen next in this passage is Paul doesn't say, no, 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 I, I'm, I'm going to make the trip. He, he says, no, the plans changed. They did change, but it was because of my faith. Let me reveal it to you. Let me show you. And he says, because, verse 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way back to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. So he's, he gives these travel plans and how, what he wanted to do. And he says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? 
Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. And he's saying, listen, you know me. We were together for 18 months. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. And then look, look what he does next in verse 19. He transitions from talking about his character to talking about the character of the God that he follows. He said, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you. And then he talks about his team. He's not all by himself here. Sylvanius and Timothy and I was not yes and no, but in him is always yes. And then look at this verse. This is amazing. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it's through him that we utter our amen, which is another word for yes, to God. We say our yes to God because he said yes to us for, the, for his glory. In verse 21, and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, who's anointed us and who has, has, has put, also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Now, this is a pretty glorious passage about Jesus. So before we even talk about our faith, or we talk about Paul's faith, or we talk about any of that, can we just pause for a second and praise Jesus for what it says here in this passage? Did you see verse 20? It says, all the promise, all, you can underline that word in your Bible, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. Do you know how many promises of God there are in the Bible? Yeah, I don't either. I've looked it up. I did not try to read from Genesis to Revelation and count all the promises. If you do, I would love for you to email me and tell me what count you come up with. But as I looked it up, there were some people that said about 9,000. Some people said there were about 3,000. It's probably somewhere in between those numbers. And so one number that I saw was 3,573. Think about that. 3,573 promises, all yes, all, did you see that in verse 20? All yes in Jesus. Wait a minute, what about promises to Abraham? Yep, there yes. In Jesus Christ. You're going to have descendants and seashore and land, seed, and blessing? Oh, yes, in Jesus. What about the David? David's always going to have someone on the throne? Yes. In, Je- in fact, that's why Matthew starts with a genealogy to the life of Jesus that goes through Abraham and David. Because all the promises are yes in Jesus. Wait, promises about fellowship? Yes, in Jesus. Restoration? Yep, in Jesus. Reconciliation? Yes, in Jesus. Forgiveness? Yes, in Jesus. His sovereignty, yes, in Jesus. His presence, yes, in Jesus. His provision, yes, in Jesus. All 3,573 promises are yes in Jesus. Can you, can you give Jesus glory for a second? Like just a couple that are some of my favorites. James chapter 4, verse 8. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Why is that possible? Because of Jesus and his reconciliation that he performed at the cross. Otherwise, we'd be separated from him. There's no way that we could change that separation, but he's the way so we can be close. There's no condemnation. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there's no condemnation, therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know why? Because Jesus is the yes when he took the condemnation on himself at the cross for your sin and for my sin. It's a yes in Jesus. Are you weary and burdened? I mean, all this stuff that's going on in this world right now is exhausting, right? It says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest for your soul. Why can Jesus give rest? He's done the work. It is finished, he said on the cross. Say yes in Jesus. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Jesus comes from heaven to earth, is here, sends the Holy Spirit to yes because of Jesus. You can go through all the promises. If you confess your sins, he is faithful. He is just. His justice was fulfilled at the cross of Christ because of Jesus. He will cleanse you of all your unrighteousness because of the Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus. But he doesn't stop there in verse 20. Did you see there's more reasons to praise Jesus? He says the work that he's done, not just in his life as an apostle, but in us. 
Timothy, Silvanus, the Corinthians, you, me. Look at what he says in verse 21. God's established us. That's our salvation. That we can stand firm in Him. Establish us with you in Christ and has anointed us. The Christian life is not meant to be done alone. You're in a small group. You need to be in a small group. In a relationship with other believers. You can't do this on your own. You can't, it's not even possible. He says it's for us. He's anointed not just the pastor, not just the king, not just the priest. He's anointed all us believers. That means He set us apart for a special mission. It's His commission for us to make disciples. And, and who has also put his seal on us. A seal was a way of marking something in its authenticity and ownership. God's done that with us. He's done this work in us, given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, his deposit at the day of redemption. Hey, that the fullness is coming, but here I'm giving you a deposit right now, my Holy Spirit, to live within you. And so God's done some incredible stuff, right? We haven't even talked about our faith. Isn't that the kind of God you want to trust? Also say yes. But here's the problem. Faith is dangerous. It sounds really good in this setting. Well, you're watching this in your kitchen or in your living room, in your bedroom, and you hear you know, preachers telling you about 3,573 promises, and you're like, I'm in. I'm all in. It's impossible to please God without faith. I want to walk by faith. He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. I'm all in. But then it comes time to do it, and it feels dangerous. It's like I saw... This story, I don't know, did you see this? That, that a few weeks ago, there was a guy that was flying on a jetpack at 3,000 feet. And two airplanes called in and said, hey, there's a guy up here. Like, I don't know, I don't know if you saw this news story or not, but there, it was over at LAX airport in California. And then the guy in the tower actually said, only in LA, like this would happen. But the, the first airline, I think it was American Airlines, called in and, and said, hey, there's a guy up here on a jetpack. We're at 3,000 feet. The next guy called in from Southwest Airlines. And it was funny, I actually looked the story up to listen to what he said. And he said it so nonchalantly. Yep, he just went by us. And I was thinking, you're in an airplane. Those things weigh like 400,000 pounds. And a dude just comes floating by, and you're like, there's a guy up here. Like, that's kind of a big deal. And when I heard this story, I thought, that'd be so cool to have a jetpack, to jetpack to work, to jetpack over the neighborhood. But then I thought about what 3,000 feet is like. 3,000 feet? I thought, McCandid thoughts? That guy's an idiot. Like, 3,000 feet? What are you doing up? That's scary. I like the idea of flying around in a jetpack, but at about 100 feet, I'm going, we're good, we're cool. That's how many of us are with faith. You like the 3,570, I'm with him, I'm with that. He's faithful to all those promises. Even when I'm not faithful, God's faithful, I'm following God. It's without faith, it's impossible to please God, I'm with God. Okay, well, let's, how's your bank account? Let's look at your money. Did your money reveal that you, that we claim as followers of Jesus that he owns it all? So does the way we spend our money reveal that he owns it all? What about our kids? Like, I believe that God loves my kids more than I love my kids, but am I going to let him have my kids? Or do I want to manage and manipulate and control? And We say that we want to experience spiritual transformation, but how many of us try to, to manufacture how that and what God's working on? You know, it's like, we're God here, I'm ready to be transformed. Why don't you work on this? And God's going, I've been working on something else for a month. You haven't been paying attention. We've got dreams. We've got dreams that we want to live out. What about when life doesn't go that way? That's when our faith is being put to the test. And that's what's happened with Paul. And he's going, no, I didn't change plans because I'm fickle. It's because I'm following an incredible God. And he, in his sovereignty, had a different plan. And so he redirected. So one of the things he used, we read about in verses 8 through 11, was affliction, too much for me to handle. 
And then he redirected it, and I believe it's for your benefit because he cares for you and I care for you. And so let's talk about my motives. What are your motives for ministry? See, God reveals our faith. The problem in the, in the church with faith, it's so easy to learn the lingo. It's so easy to play the part. But you know when you're really walking by faith? It's when your character gets tested and you start looking at where are the cracks? Where are these, where, where am I really trusting or do I just know the verses? Am I, am I really leaning into his promises to guide my life? Am I, really, am I really thinking that when I obey his commands, I'm not just sacrificing, giving stuff up, that he actually wants what's best for me? I actually trust him? Our faith is revealed. What are you trusting in? Your power, your bank account, your reputation? Or a sovereign, faithful God who might have a different plan for your life than you do? Now, Paul says he, he reveals our faith, he reveals our heart, but he also reveals our motives. Look at the next verse here in verse 23. He's been accused of domineering them, being kind of a bully pastor. He says, but I call God to witness against me. May God be my witness. God, you strike me down if I'm lying. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming into... I did this not only because of suffering, not only because I trust a sovereign God, but because of for your benefit, Corinth. I wanted to spare you pain. Look what he says. I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. For you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. She has care for them. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Listen, I, I, it's like he's saying, look, I, I didn't come because I want to give the Holy Spirit some space to work. I, I didn't want to be pained. I can't, he wrote a painful letter. We're going to see and talk about that in a little bit. But he didn't want to come and have a painful visit. He wanted to come and have joy. His, his motivation in ministry wasn't to bully them. See, he wanted their joy. But ultimately, his motive was his own joy. Did you see that? Doesn't that sound selfish? But it's not. He's, just, he's being transparent. He's going, listen, I believe that ultimately I'm going to experience joy when you're experiencing joy. You see, in verse 24, he said, he said, not that I lord it over your faith, but that we work with you for your joy. And then you go down, jump down to verse two and or chapter two and verse three. He says, uh, "Those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all." And what he's saying here is this: the motivation of my ministry is joy, my joy. But the only way I experience joy is when you experience joy. So another way to say it would be like this: like some pastors will say. The happiness and joy are different. The happiness is based on circumstances. That joy comes from God. And the Bible just doesn't do that. Okay, the words are synonymous. And so it's not like one's eternal and one's temporary. They're, they're, they're synonyms. And so it'd be like saying this. I'm happy when you're happy. So my ultimate goal is your happiness. I, I, I experience pleasure when you experience pleasure. And so I want your satisfaction. Your joy is my joy. I want you to have joy. I remember one time being in a conference for pastors here in Raleigh. And there was a guy, famous pastor preaching, his name was John Piper. And he was preaching on this passage. And he was talking about how he was challenging pastors. Like, you should have, your, your, the motivation for your ministry should be the joy of your people because that will ultimately be your joy. About two-thirds of the way through the message, he says, 
You know, there's nothing about this message, this, his own sermon, he says, that's really distinctly Christian. That's about the gospel. Like, this is just kind of like a mutual affection society we're talking about here, that I want you to be happy so that I can be happy. And so I don't know what your ministry is with your kids, with your coworkers, in your church. Like, you want the joy of the other person so that you can experience joy. And it's just like, you be nice, I'll be nice, we'll all be nice. And but he says, do you know what, what makes this distinctly rooted in the gospel is verse 24. It's faith. Did you see it in verse 24? Verse 24, he says, Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. And, and then he, said, he gave an observation that changes the way that I read this passage now. I hope it will change the way you read the passage. Because he says, It's not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your, and it seems like the next word should be faith. But it's joy. For you stand firm in your faith. And he uses faith and joy here, Almost like they're synonyms for one another. Like, if you really want to experience joy, then you're going to live by faith. What does it look like to live by faith? Well, it's believing that what God says is going to bring you the most joy will bring you the most joy. What does God say that is? Himself. Here's the problem. Many of us operate like, and you can see it in our lives, when you examine, when you hold it up to the light, our lives, when you look at our social media accounts, when you look at our bank accounts, when you look at how we use our time, when you look at the things we say, we operate like, if I could just get all the circumstances around me right, then I would have joy. And an analogy I've thought of for this is, some of you know I like to hang out at Walmart, and uh, that hasn't changed um, through this season. I've still hung out, you know, one time hunting for toilet paper up there with the rest of y'all, and, and then once toilet paper came in, still just hanging out, talking to employees and folks that are there. At one point, they were out of TVs for a long time. I went to the electronics department and said, why don't y'all have any TVs? And they said, well, everybody's decorating their house. Everybody's upgrading. Everybody's in their homes so much right now. They're making their houses nicer. Now, listen, every designer I know and contractor I know and builder I know, they're all busy right now. People are all fixing stuff up. Now, what I'm about to say, I'm not saying it's wrong to renovate your house. Okay, Shannon and I, we've done some projects around our house and some renovation in our house. It's not wrong to do that. But the image I get of what many of us are trying to experience is if we just got everything right, then we'd be Joyous, happy, pleasure, satisfied, whatever word you want to use. And so I get a picture of a person who's got the, the, the perfect room with all the decorations and the picture and the nice TV and like everything there, and they're sitting in their chair, but their heart hasn't changed. Now what? And, and maybe you go beyond your house, and it's like, if I, we could just get this country right. If you just vote the right way. If we could just get church right, like if we just had a church that agreed with me about mask or no mask, about reentry and no reentry, about which kind of praise band, how long the service is, and had the right programs, and if I could just get my family to do the things I want my family to do, and it, I'll say it all that happened. You know that joy is a fruit of the Spirit? You experience joy ultimately through faith. You get all the circumstances right. What Paul is preparing you for is that regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the travel plans, regardless of the dreams, regardless of the tragedies, regardless of what happens in your life, you can have joy. But you've got to trust God. that He's truly the source of that joy. And when you experience it, then you want other people to experience it. So church family, I mean, we've done outreaches throughout this COVID season. We've done giving school supplies away, hundreds of school supplies away to schools around here, neighborhoods around here, giving food, thousands of pounds of food. We've done blood drives to try and literally save people's lives. We've gone to the hospital and blessed workers there, police stations. Like, we've done outreaches as a church. But you know, if we're really going to have an impact in the city, what has to happen? Is that in your heart, God has to be your joy. 
and then every ministry that you have with your kids, with your coworkers, at the coffee shop, with the police, when you come in contact with the schools and the schools that your kids are in and all those th- that it overflows out of your life, that you'd experience that transformation. That's what Paul's longing for here. And what we want is your joy. So you can then spread that throughout our community because what you're doing is you're getting people to live by faith in God. And your faith, your character, your heart are all being tested. What are you, what's being revealed? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can gather in your name all around the world and be together in this moment. And God, you're working in this moment. And, and I know that even somebody who's sitting watching this all alone, that you are present and that you are moving. And God, I pray you'd move in hearts. And if there's somebody that needs to repent of sin, that right now this would be a moment of repentance. If there's somebody who needs to trust your son Jesus as their savior, they would confess their sin to him and they would call upon him to be their savior right in this moment. If there are believers that you're revealing cracks, will you, will you have us repent and turn to you and will you begin to do a work and fill those cracks by, because of your grace, that we live according to your grace, that even if somebody does accuse us of sin, that it's true. We can say, yeah, that's right, and I've dealt with it. And the Lord's forgiven it and it's been taken care of and, we're, and somebody needs to make amends, they make amends. And God, that we would... We wouldn't make your grace cheap, but we would be transformed by it. We would live by your promises. We would walk by faith. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.